Dr. Nunnally, we are so privileged to have you. Can we uh, show our appreciation one more time for Dr. Nunnally as he begins the second half? Thanks. Okay, in our first session uh, this morning, we looked almost exclusively at Jesus uh, and evidences for our uh, 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 investing our trust in our scriptures because those scriptures are validated by material outside the Bible, both literary and archaeological. We're going to draw the circle a little bit bigger in this session, and we're going to look at the Bible in its entirety. So we'll have examples from both Old and New Testament, and we're going to, again, take an evidential approach to the Scriptures. Um, like I'm, As I introduce the other stuff, we're going to be kind of beating around the edges. Nothing is going to change whether we believe the Scriptures inspired or salvation is by grace through faith or Jesus um, is the Son of God and the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The way of, uh, of salvation is by grace through faith. We're not going to change any of those basic um, uh, uh, Christian beliefs, but I am hoping that when, as we look at this material in the second session, that you will um, kind of come to grips with the Bible, the nature of Scripture, and the kind of the, the sort of approach to Scripture that we should be taking, that that will change a little bit for some of you. Um, and if it does, then it probably needs to. Most of the time when we uh, look at Scripture, often what we get on Christian TV or from certain Christian preachers, not Pastor Chad and others because we train them the right way, you get, well, the, the, Bible, the Bible is a code book. The Bible is a magical book. The Bible is a source book for um, formulas and stuff that if we say it the right way, we get out of God what we want to get out of God, what we feel like we need. And all of that is basically antithetical or going in the opposite direction from the message of Scripture. Um, when you hear uh, the, um, the New Testament, the Old Testament talk, you hear stuff like Exodus 3. Moses said, okay, so I'm going to the sons of Israel. But when they asked me, Who's going, who is this God who will deliver us? Mo uh, God tells Moses, you tell them, this is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, this isn't one of those many hundreds, thousands of gods that you've been living around in Egypt for the last 400 years. This is the covenant God of your forefathers who promised and who fulfilled. He's a God who's trustworthy. He's a God who is a God of his word. He's a God of history. He's a God whose track record is clear for everybody to see. And you can simply look back at his biography or look back at his portfolio. You can look back at his resume and this God who says he's going to deliver you is a God who is powerful enough to make it happen and trustworthy enough for you to count on for this to happen. So what you're seeing then from the early origins of the Bible, from the, the words of Moses all the way through, you're hearing this is a God who is a God of history, a God of reality, a God that you can check his track record and you can trust him. Now, when you get to the New Testament, it is absolutely no different than that. Well, now we have faith. Yeah, I know, but what is the nature of faith? Placing your trust in a God who has shown himself to be trustworthy. 
And that goes back to historical reality. So not surprisingly, we have in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Now after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to his disciples, listen to this, with many convincing proofs. Old and New Testament is not any different. This is not some kind of um, etherical, ethereal, philosophical kind of hoping against hope like uh, Elvis Presley did. Why are you wearing a, um, a Star of David and an cr- uh, Islamic crescent and a Roman Catholic crucifix and a Protestant cross around? He says, well, I don't want to miss heaven on a technicality. I'm not going to try to <laughs> oh, I miss heaven on a technicality. Um, we're not talking about horseshoes and hand grenades here, folks. We're t- it's, it's, it's just like when, you, like when you're witnessing. It's not what you think. It's not what you know. It's what can you prove. That's the, that's the basis of our legal court system. It's not what you know or what you, or what you think. It's what can you prove. So what we want to do is look at some evidences that's going to lead us to a point where the Bible is not a mystical book, it's not a magical book. It's not a code book. It's not a, um, it's not a formula book. And it's not shrouded in mist and legend and, uh, uh, and, and hoping against hope, horseshoes and, and hand grenades kind of uh, sort of faith. Um, we're going to want to look at uh, other lenses other than running to the Bible, reading a passage, and then starting to apply arbitrary meanings to each point in the story. Let me just illustrate it like this. There was a a great church leader in the late 400s, early 500s, whose name we refer to him as St. Augustine of Hippo. St. Augustine of Hippo. And it was popular in that day, as it also is today, to just read a passage in the Bible and begin to assign arbitrary meanings to each point in the story. Example, the way St. Augustine interpreted the parable of the Good Samaritan is like this. There was a man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Bam! Down? That means he fell. This is a reference to Adam and Eve when they fell in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Really? Is that what Jesus meant when he told that parable? And then he um, fell among thieves. Well, there's a passage in John, even though this text is from Luke 10, there's a passage in John that says the thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy, and the thief is the devil. So the devil tempted him to fall and then afflicted him once he fell into sin, the thieves that beat the man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And left him half dead. That means that, you know, we've all sinned and the wages of sin is death. Now he's importing from the book of Romans. Uh, So then along comes um, the good Samaritan. Well, that's Jesus who saves us from, from our sins. And he delivered him to the inn in Jericho. Well, the inn is representative of of the church. The innkeeper then, well, who was that? Oh, well, that's Paul, because Paul was entrusted a responsibility to care for all of this. you see where all of this is going? But the problem is in Luke chapter 10, Jesus had never met or heard of Paul. How could he have meant then that the innkeeper was Paul? You see what I'm, see where this is? And I know that this is an extreme example, but this is what was going on in the uh, Greek-speaking, um, more Hellenistic, uh, later church. 
that has stuck with us throughout the centuries, and we still get this kind of stuff in the pulpit and in commentaries and uh, even in um, uh, conferences and seminars that, that you go to. The church is full of this. But the question will always be when you're approaching the Bible, what did the original divinely inspired author intend to communicate? That's what governs all communication. That's the reason that we have this question, whether it's a fax or it's an email or a voicemail or a telephone call or a live conversation. What do you mean by that? We say that all the time. What are you saying? So what do you mean? What's the takeaway point? What are you getting at? That's the kind of questions we ask of normal communication today. That's the kind of question we should ask the Bible. What did the original divinely inspired author intend to communicate? Not can, what can I conceive of? What can I dream up? What kind of arbitrary meanings can I assign to every point in a Bible story or even a parable as we uh, just illustrated a minute ago. I want, to, I want you to look with me at a few lenses to look at the Bible through because this is what you get when you go to Israel. You, the people who went on the last trip, grab one of them after this session and ask them, is this what they were pushing in Israel? Is this the kind of stuff that, that, that you guys were covering there? It's not just, you know, pointing and show and tell and yeah that's the grave of an ancient saint that's a grave of an ancient um, um, uh, Islamic mullah or imam or whatever no we dig down into the realities of faith and I say it all the time this is fertile ground this is where your faith can really grow uh, this is um, uh, this kind of stuff is where faith becomes sight. You remember that Horatio Spafford song, and Lord, hasten the day when faith becomes sight. The skies roll back like a scroll. Well, the reality is we can do that today. There's enough reality, biblical reality left around that we can see, and that provides that fertile ground where our relationship with God, our trust in him can indeed grow. So let's do some. We're going to look at the, the Bible through the lenses of literature, history, language, geography, archaeology, and even geology. Can we do that in 50 minutes-ish? We're going to try. I want to warn you, I'm not interested in you. This is big picture stuff. I don't want you to feel like you're, there's no test at the end of this. Okay? I'm not going to give you a grade. You're off the hook. So sit back and enjoy and get the big picture of this. Don't try to get all the details. This stuff will be on your website. You can download it. You can go back over this stuff. You're welcome to do that at any point after this, okay? So just get the, if you would, get the big picture. If you get, start drilling down and get lost in any of these details, then I'm going to lose you, and I don't want that. So next. The first one we're going to look at is the Bible through the lens of literature. How can ancient literature outside the Bible help us to clarify or get perspective, bigger picture kind of stuff for the stuff in our Bible? And I'm just going to give you one example of this as well as the, all the other ones. Next. Okay, in Mark chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus has um, been arrested uh, and... Um, he, or is, is about to be arrested, and the, and the, the passion, his, the word passion in ancient times, pasco in Greek, means to suffer. 
the suffering of Jesus is about to take place. Now it's an emotion. Language changes. So Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that you yourself, this, listen to this, this very night before the cock crows twice will will three times deny me. Now my question is this, and this is unique to Mark. This very night, Mark adds that it's not in Matthew, it's not in Luke. And John's kind of on his own thing on this. So this very night. Well, cock crow typically for us is at the break of day of the next morning. So if Jesus is talking about two cock crows, then this saying or prediction or whatever is almost unintelligible. It's certainly irrelevant. It's kind of like within two days, Peter, you're going to deny me. But as the story plays its way out, that's not what happens at all. Peter denies him three times that same night. And that's exactly what Jesus says, this very night. So how do you or how would Jesus have known that a rooster, which can crow at almost any time, but which we usually associate with the the dawn of a new day, yeah? Okay, how does this make any sense at all in this original context? So watch what happens when we start scratching a little bit at ancient literature outside the Bible. Next. Do you remember our friend? Okay. First century Jewish historian, contemporary of the apostles, wrote the same Greek at the same time that the New Testament was being written. And Josephus says um, that in Jerusalem, the night was divided into watches of three hours each. We know about the watches of the night and that sort of thing, right? It's usually associated with mariners, but watches of the night or with the military. You go on different watches, you have... An eight-hour shift or whatever. Next. In the Mishnah, which is some of the earliest rabbinic, the teachings of the ancient rabbis, in the Mishnah, the the, um, rabbis say, no one is allowed to raise roosters in Jerusalem on account of of, uh, concern regarding the holy things. Jerusalem is a holy city, the temple is there, the priesthood is there, the altar is there, and these are supposed to be protected from being defiled by various things. And roosters and chickens scratch around and could unintentionally maybe um, come in contact with pieces of dead bodies, buried people. There's graveyards all around Jerusalem. It's an ancient city. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years of burials have taken place. And so the rabbinic rule was no chickens, no roosters around Jerusalem. So then how are you going to have a cock crow when the rabbis had forbidden by decree the raising of chickens and roosters in and around Jerusalem due to concern for ritual impurity, contact with dead um, uh, bodies and that kind of thing? And the answer is, well, you didn't. And by the way, this is also uh, reflected in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that uh, chickens, roosters were not allowed in the holy city. Next, Mishnah, same thing. At Kokro, which in Hebrew is Kriyat HaGever, they blew a sustained and then a quavering and then another sustained blast. This is on one of the, the silver trumpets that was used in the temple to sound, to mark time. Kind of like the, the dinging of a big bin, you know, uh, the, the sounding of, a, of church bells or, or whatever to mark time 
that we still have in our day to day. So it, it's a it's a human generated sound, not a man generated sound. <clears throat> if it's human generated, then it can be controlled. It's not indiscriminate. It doesn't just happen just whenever some uh, rooster gets a wild hair. I guess you would say feather, right? Um, uh, it it happens in a in a way that can be measured and controlled. Uh, so they're using this technical term. Remember what Jesus says, before the cock crows twice. And, this, and, and they're referring here to the blowing of a trumpet. Next text. In another rabbinic text, what is kriatagever, that Hebrew phrase, the, the calling of the man or the calling of the cock, the rooster? It can be translated either way. Gever is either, can be translated in Greek and in Hebrew, can be translated man, a male human, or a male chicken. There might be something deeply psychological going on there. Uh, just don't mess with that, okay? Uh, uh, Rob said, it is the call of a man. The teaching, and this is a technical term, there is ancient information that's been handed down since before the time of Jesus that goes like this. What does Gabini the temple crier call out? This is what the man, the, the gever, the, the calling of the cock or the calling of the adult male, uh, the call of a man. This is what he says. Arise, you priests, for your service. O Levites, for your platform. O Israel, for your post. Um, and his voice could be heard for five to seven miles. Now listen to this. It once happened that King Agrippa, we know about this King Agrippa. He's called Herod, even though it's not Herod the Great, it's his grandson. He's the one who killed James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, with the sword in Acts 12. And he's the one who arrested Peter, but then the angel rescued him from jail again in Acts 12. You remember this story? That, that guy's real name, his given name, his birth name, was not Herod. That's a throne name like Edward or Louis or... Um, uh, Wilhelm, you know, some of the Elizabeths that you have multiples of, it becomes a throne name. And so this Agrippa is called Herod in Acts 12, but he was coming along, traveling, and heard this guy's voice, not the call of a rooster, but the call of a man from five to seven miles away. So when he got home, he sent gifts to him. He was blessed by, encouraged by the sound of this man's voice. Why is it that the appearance of King Agrippa's name in this text is important? It firmly roots this practice in first century Judaism of the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Does that make sense? King Agrippa. Next. Here's an, a text that it, 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 uh, appears right here in an, uh, ar from archaeology. Benjamin Mazar found this in the 1960s, excavating just below the Temple Mount. It had fallen from about 200 feet above during the Roman destruction of the Temple Mount in A.D. 70. This is a, um, uh, basically a road sign. It says in Hebrew, levate to the place, the um, house, hatkiah, of the blowing to the place of the trumpeting or the blowing. That was a specific spot on the Temple Mount. Interestingly, next slide, this has changed the uh, location. Boy, that's dark. 
Sorry about that. All right, well, it, it changes the location of what we used to think was the pinnacle of the temple. Here's the, the, the city wall of Jerusalem. Do you see the wall? Okay, this is the temple mount right here, Mount of Olives, Judean wilderness. There's even a blue strip. I'm sorry for the, um, the dark slide. I'm not exactly sure what happened to that. Anyway, here's the Kidron Valley in this shadow separating the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives right here. So the Temple Mount is right here, and people used to say it was right there on that corner, the pinnacle of the temple where Satan took Jesus to be tempted and uh, said, throw yourself down. It's, it said he's, uh, it's written, he'll give his angels charge concerning you lest you bear, uh, strike your foot against a stone. But we now know that the pinnacle of the temple was not there. It was on that corner of the temple because that's where this inscription was found by Mazar in the 1960s. It's fascinating stuff. It, it's, it, it's not, it isn't presuppositional. It's evidence. It's evidential in nature. And I see that as the nature of our faith. Old and New Testament combined, it's all about the evidence. It's all about the real, the historical, the verifiable, the, the legitimate. Not what you think, feel, um, hope. Uh, it's, it's about our faith is founded, is based, it's a historically based faith. Judaism and Christianity, and these, these are the only world religions based on history. Everything else is about speculation, spirituality, what you feel, um, what you intuit, um, and, and we dare not give away that uniqueness. That then makes us like all of the other faiths of the world. If we give up this idea that Christianity is a historically reality-based faith. Next. Okay, here's a model. Guys, you remember this, this pointer? Nice Chinese powerful pointer, and you can use it outdoors. I love it. But that's what we used. This is what we used. This is a flashback from a year ago. Um, as are also the shoes. And this, which you might want to erase from your memory. Okay. Anyway, this is a model of the whole city of Jerusalem as it, as it existed about the time of Jesus. Here's the eastern gate. Here's the court of the Gentiles. This is the temple proper. This is the holy place inside of the temple. Folks used to think, and you'll see it in maps on old Bibles if you turn to the back, that this is the pinnacle of the temple. They, we were wrong all along. It was the other side. This is the royal stoa, or the, what the, uh, the Jerusalem Talmud calls the Beit HaChanuyot, the place of the selling, the place of the, the shops, where the buying and selling and money changing was taking place in the temple right here. And so it's the pinnacle of the temple is there because that inscription was found right at the base of the temple down below right there. Is this in context making sense? Nobody's lost? Okay. So you're actually on the Mount of Olives right now looking over the Kidron Valley and onto the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. So you can almost say you've been there digitally. That's pretty neat, isn't it? I used to think when I lived in Israel in the 80s, how in the world am I going to present this to people who have never been there and many of whom will never go, unfortunately? Probably about 90% of you guys are never going to go. And you think you are, you just won't. But blessed are you who are among the 10%. For yours is the whatever. <laughs> Next slide. All right. We're looking at Jerusalem and the Temple Mount from the back, from the west, looking east now. So we were just up here 
a minute ago, looking down on the temple this way. So this is the pinnacle of the temple, not that, because right down here is where the, uh, the discovery was made of that stone with the inscription on it. This, by the way, in the foreground is Herod's palace. Well, Herod the Great was dead in Jesus' day, and uh, he died back when Jesus was very young. And uh, so uh, who was in this palace? Pontius Pilate. The very pavement, what John calls Gabata in, uh, in Hebrew Aramaic, where Jesus appeared before Pilate and Pilate said, Behold the man, that whole scene from Mel Gibson's movie and in all of the Gospels, that happened right here. That's been discovered archaeologically. You can see it and put your hands on it and walk on it. Just unbelievable that these realities from the time, the same stones Jesus walked on, you walk on when you're there. And you know, quite honestly, it's become almost cliche. I want to walk where Jesus walked. I'm not all that interested in people who go to study with me walking where Jesus walked. I'm a lot more interested in them walking like Jesus walked. And that happens. That happens. Why? Why does that so regularly happen when we take not a tour, but a study trip and a careful approach of investing in people's lives and, and helping them to develop perspective, yes, but tools also so that they can then read their Bible differently for the rest of their lives. Why does that happen? Because here, faith becomes sight. So may that 10% grow. Amen. Paid political announcement. Next. <laughs> Here's a close-up of the same. Next. So in this Mark 14 passage, truly I say to you that you yourself this very night, before the second watch of the night, you will have denied me three times. Does that make sense now? You saw the text, you saw the archaeology, you saw the historical, the, the current geographical reality, and it just, it, it's so open book. It just like unfolds like a... Um, what do, they, what do they have at these places like Logan's Steakhouse, a blooming onion, where they cook it and it just kind of breaks open and then you get to eat it and have fun? It's like that. It's like a rose opening up again um, in the morning as the sun uh, comes on it. The, the, the reality, the truth, the clarity, and that's what provides the fertile ground for spiritual growth. Next. Okay. Second lens. The Bible through the lens of history. Okay. Ephesians chapter 2, really important text because it talks about Jesus and what he accomplished for us in our lives all the way up to the 21st century. Remember that you Gentiles, according to the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, the Gentiles by the Jews. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. Listen to this language. Separated, excluded, strangers, um, no hope without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, who you were formerly, through Christ Jesus, you were formerly far off, right? Excluded, strangers, uh, having no hope who are far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. Look at this. He's brought us near. He's our peace. He's made the both groups, the circumcision and the uncircumcision, into one. Broke down the middle wall of partition. That's the way that the old King James reads. The middle wall of partition or the dividing wall of partition. Um, 
by abolishing, this is what he did. He accomplished this. He broke down the dividing wall of partition by abolishing in his flesh the hatred. That's just an old word for hatred. So that in him he might make the two, who is that? These two groups, Jewish and non-Jewish, into one man, establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. That's some crazy cool stuff that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Yeah? Some of the greatest hatred, first century, of all, it has resulted in a lengthy year after year revolt, Jews against Rome. And this was written on the eve of that revolt, just within a period of a couple of years before that revolt. So then you're no longer strangers or aliens, but now you're fellow citizens and you're of God's household. You're sons and daughters of the living God. And, and, and you belong to him as family. This is all accomplished in the cross, having been built on the foundation of the pro- apostles and prophets, etc. All right, so how, we're being built together as a dwelling place. Did you know you don't have to go anywhere to experience the presence of God? Why? Because you brought him into this building with you. You are temples of the Holy Spirit. You're portable tabernacles like the priest used to carry the Ark of the Covenant and all the other parts of the tabernacle around on poles on their shoulders. You are now that. God lives inside you. Everywhere you go, he's already there. Why? Because you took him with you. Every place you go, you sanctify, you make holy because God's presence is there because he promised he was going to live, dwell inside you. How is that possible? The cross. He broke down the dividing wall of the cross. He unleashed the presence of God on the world And down through the halls of time, through the centuries, to today, to now, to here, to inside of you. And let's take a look at what this dividing wall is. Because this is the only time this phrase ever shows up in the Bible, Old or New Testament. I heard it said when I was first saved back in 1974 in the Jesus movement, you need to read the Old Testament because the Old Testament explains the New Testament. Well, unfortunately, not everything that shows up in the New Testament is in the Old Testament to be explained. For example, I defy you to show me synagogue in the Old Testament. And and yet it's a New Testament reality all over the place. You won't find the Herodian dynasty. You won't find Rome. You won't find Pontius Pilate. You won't find Pharisees. You won't find Sadducees. You won't find the kind of ritual immersion and stuff like that that's going on in the New Testament because it simply hadn't developed yet. It hadn't happened. It happened between Malachi and Matthew, which is what happened to be, that, that was the focus of my doctoral studies. So nobody else was doing it. I figured, why not? It's job security, Right? less competition right it ended up working you know you tell i haven't missed many meals all right so growing into a holy temple in the lord how does this happen this business of um breaking down the dividing wall or the middle wall of partition let's take a look at that because we're not going to find it in the old testament we have to look elsewhere next First Maccabees, I know it's in the Roman Catholic Bible, and we have all kinds of issues with that. But this is an intertestamental between Malachi and Matthew document that was written about 134 B.C. 
And these guys were the heroes of the intertestamental period, these Maccabees. Kid came to me after class one day and he said, could you remind me of what you said were the causes of the Macadamian revolt? <laughs> Honest to God. And I said, well, you know, all those guys were just a bunch of nuts. And he, <laughs> hey, you get what you pay for. Don't be in you know, size and booze. And so, and, so, um, and so he goes, oh, okay, and walked on away. And I'm going, no, wait, come back. Let me fix this. All liars have their place in the lake of fire. <laughs> Don't go off with that. <laughs> anyway, 1 Maccabees, in the 153rd year, which translates into somewhere in the 150s B.C., the second wa- the month, month Alchemus, we know of this guy from rabbinic literature, his name was Yaakim, uh, gave orders to tear down the wall of the inner court of the sanctuary. That's the middle wall of partition. He tore down the work. He says, this, went, this is really ancient. This goes back to the days of the prophets. So that's the first reference that I hear from outside the Bible literature, extra-biblical literature, um, that refers to this middle wall of partition. Are we sure that this is the same thing, the same reality? Next slide. Philo is a contemporary of Jesus. He's a contemporary of Josephus, too. He's a Jew living in Egypt who wrote in the same Greek as the New Testament, and he wrote in more than any other ancient author whose works we have. Thirteen volumes, Philo of Alexandria, a contemporary of Jesus. You ever heard of him? We have work to do then, right? Philo of Alexandria, and it's available in English and on the Internet, and if you guys are, have, have Wi-Fi and you've got it dialed up, you can be reading the works of Philo before I finish the sentence. Right? So, still more abounding, says Philo, and particular is the zeal of them all, all Jewish people, for the temple. And the strongest proof of this is that death without appeal is the sentence against those of other races, non-Jews, who penetrate its inner confines because the outer courts are open to everyone wherever they come from. So now we have a separation. You've got inner courts and you've got outer courts. The outer court is what we refer to today. It's not an ancient term. It's a modern term. The court of the... Thank you very much. You did know some of Philo. Next. Josephus says, proceeding across the court of the Gentiles, and I inserted that. There's the reason for the brackets. He, he calls it the outer court. Toward the second court of the temple, one found it surrounded by a stone barrier. This word right here is it's actually a whole phrase in Greek. Meso, meaning middle, right? Like the mezzanine layer. The mesotoikon to fragmu. And it simply means, literally, the middle wall of fragmentation or dividing. The middle wall of partition. It's the same phrase that, that uh, Paul used in Ephesians chapter 2. It's Josephus and, Lu- and Paul are the only people I could find that use that exact same phrase, mesotoikon, to fragmu. To means the, to the fragmentation, to fragmu. All right, so the middle wall of partition, three cubits high. That's a cubit is um, from, from here to here. Three cubits high. 
three of those, about three and a half to four feet, and of exquisite workmanship. In this, at regular intervals, stood slabs giving warning, some in Greek and others in Latin characters, of the law of purification. Why wouldn't it be in Hebrew? Because anybody who could read Hebrew was Jewish, and they could go in, so they didn't need the warning. All right? Of the law of purification, so that no foreigner was permitted to enter the holy place, for so the second enclosure of the temple was called. Do you remember that uh, slide I showed you just a minute ago of the temple mount? you got the big court of the Gentiles wrapping around this smaller kind of rectangular chunk of real estate right in the middle. And it had walls surrounding it. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Next. Here it is right here. Here is the holy place. This is the actual temple. Everything else is window dressing. That's just so that folks like you and me could go in and worship the God of Israel. Thank you very much, ancient Jews for giving us a place at the table even before Jesus, okay? kind of inviting us in. And then we get uh, salvation and relationship with God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of all icing on the cake. All right, so this back, this is the middle wall of partition. We actually have some remnants of it archaeologically on this corner right here. I think I pointed it out to you guys, right? You've got pictures, so you've got something for your friends who did go and invest in themselves. Give them a chance to show you. We'll show and tell after I'm gone. Then you go up some steps, and you go into what is called the gate. Come on, somebody. Starts with a B, ends with an L. The gate, beautiful, exactly. This is where the man was laid that had never walked a step in his life. And Peter says, I don't have any money, but such as I have, I give to you. In the name, remember that, how important the name was? Because supposedly you can do magic and all that stuff with a name. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. No, no, no formula, no kind of ritual or incantation or anything like that. Get up in the name of Jesus. That's my authority. And the man stands up and walks. It's the first step in his life. The gate beautiful, the court of the women, the court of the Israelites inside where you can't really see very well, but between this and that, the court of the priests where the sacrifice was done, and then this marble structure that is gilded, has gold in, on parts of it, is, the, is covering the holy, the holy of the holies, yeah. Okay, next. Uh, a French archaeologist almost 100, right around 100 years ago found two inscriptions. Just walking around the Temple Mount found two of them. This one is in the museum, in, the archaeological museum in Istanbul, Turkey. And you have a Greek inscription right here. And there's another one. There's, the other one is in the Israel Museum. You saw it. Yeah? Um, and so here's the translation. No foreigner is to enter within the fence or railing around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself will be put to, to, to will be put the blame for the death that will ensue. In other words, his, his own. Yeah? Isn't this interesting? This is, these are those warning signs put on the middle wall of partition that Josephus was talking about. Absolutely fascinating. Next. 
You see, what happens is that this doesn't just help us understand what Jesus did for us by removing the, the differentiation between Jews and Gentiles. Jews could come all the way in. Gentiles were kept at arm's length. Now we have that Holy Spirit living on the inside of us. We have become that holy of holies. Yeah. All right. So we, we not only better understand what Jesus did on the cross, but if you look in the book of Acts, you'll understand this a little bit better. Men of Israel, help. This is the man, Paul, who brought Greeks into the big the, the temple enclosure and has defiled the holy place, that uh, rectangular piece in the middle. It actually contains the temple courts. And they were seeking to... Do you understand why? This is law. This is rule. The Romans had accorded the Jews, if this happens, you have the right to kill them, even if they're Roman. Away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. They're just carrying out what we're hearing from Ephesians and from the Mishnah and from Philo of Alexandria and from archaeology. It's absolutely fascinating. So now you don't have to wonder, well, what does that mean, middle wall of partition? Uh, it only occurs in Ephesians 2. It doesn't show up in the New Testament. Uh, anybody got a coin to flip? No. What this evidence has done is put the coin back in our pocket. We know exactly what this means. Jesus has eliminated the difference between Jew and Gentile, and he has opened the way to, for all of mankind into the presence of God, not just into the presence of God, but to, in, to have the presence of God inside. Isn't that neat? He abolished the enmity. He reconciled us back to God. He broke down the middle wall of partition. It's not guesswork anymore. It's hardcore. I know that I know that I know. So Paul isn't just making this stuff up as though he's talking in terms of metaphysical speculation. It's hardcore reality. Next. The Bible through the lens of language. Let's do this one. Matthew 15. Um, why are you transgressing the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? God said, honor your father and mother. But you say, whoever says to father or mother anything that Anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. How do, we, how do we interpret honor your father and mother? Two ways. Come on. How do we do it typically in our culture? Respect and obedience. Respect and obedience. Is that what Jesus is saying here? When he says... Anything of mine you might have been helped by is been, has been given to God. Is that our respect? No. Is that our obedience? No. Anything that belongs to me that you might have been helped by, I have donated that to God. It's not the same thing, is it? So Jesus doesn't know about the way we have applied that Scripture, honor your father and mother. He has a different interpretation of what that means and how you're supposed to live by it. So he says, you've invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Sometimes I wonder if we don't do that. When we're, when we're too busy saying, what do I need this to mean? Or this is what my pastor 30 years ago taught me. Or, this is what I learned in Sunday school. This is what I read in this Bible commentary or whatever. Instead of listening to what did the divinely inspired author 
mean when he wrote? So, next slide. In Mark uh, 7, you've got anything of mine that you might have been helped by. Is, he uses this word, korban. It's in your English Bible. It's a word that's not English, but it's in your English Bible. Let's take a look at what that might mean. The same word shows up in Matthew 27. This is as Jesus is being crucified. Judas brought back the money and the priests said, we can't do, use this as korban because it's blood money. So it shows up in Matthew as well. It's not just kind of something weird that crops up in the Gospel of Mark. Next. It had something to do with the temple treasury. Did you see that? Josephus says, honor to parents. That's honor your father and mother. In the law, ranks second only to honor to God because the slightest failure in his duty toward them, it hands him over to be stoned. Next. Rabbinic literature. What is a commandment pertaining to the son, uh, uh, to the son concerning the father? That's giving him food to eat and something to drink and clothing him and covering him and taking him out and bringing him in and washing his face and his hands and his feet. When is that? When they can't do it for themselves. When is that? Older age or some kind of injury or affliction or whatever. Um, all the same, it's, it's the same rule for men and women with respect to the responsibilities toward their parents. Do you see how this is being defined and they're going in the same direction that Jesus was going? Next, rabbinic literature again. What is reverence and honor? Honor means that he must give his father food and drink and clothe him and cover him and lead him in and out. Both this text in Sifra and in that Tosefta text, this is the earliest rabbinic stuff that we have. This goes all the way back to first century realities and even before that. So we're talking about we're not talking about medieval rabbis. We're not talking about modern rabbis. We're talking about rabbis who were contemporaries of and sometimes even before Jesus. Next. Then we find archaeology coming into play. It's absolutely fascinating. This is a, um, the, Greek, the Hebrew letter here is the K letter. This is the R letter. Notice that it's like our R except pointed in the other direction because Hebrew writes from right to left. And theirs is right and ours is wrong because they were before us. I'm just messing with you. Right? Uh, there's also some interesting etchings down here below. And I want, uh, uh, that'll become clearer in just a minute. Next uh, slide. All right. What, what was done in order to see this whole thing, because it's written around a um, sort of a bottle cap, uh, a plug for a jug made out of stone. Stoneware is important because it, it can't contract ritual impurity. That's a big deal in first century Judaism. All right. So now we take this and you roll that out on a piece of clay and it makes an impression. And what it says is K-R, that's a B, and, and a, an N. K-R-B-N. Now Hebrew doesn't have, most of the time, vowels. We have, you have to supply them. So what does that sound like? K-R-B-N. Throw some vowels Talk, buy a vowel from Vanna, right? <laughs> Korban, Korban. We're now we're right back to Josephus. We're right back to the New Testament. Um, this is something that has been given as a gift to God. 
It's a technical term used of donations for the uh, support of the temple. And several dozen of these kinds of things have been, this is not unique, several dozen of these have been found in and around the temple mount that say korban. It's something that's been donated or devoted to the temple use. And here's another really interesting thing. Did you see this beak right here in the head of the bird? And the bird is lying down facing up. So also is this one. They're in a very unnatural position. They're birds, two birds lying down like this. These are the two turtle doves that are offered as the, what is called the poor man's sacrifice. Do you remember the text in Luke 1? Luke 1, no, Luke 2. Luke chapter 2, they offered, as the law commanded, two turtle doves. So this is sacrificial, temple-related kind of stuff. And now we're in a reality that's in Luke chapter 2 at the birth and dedication of Jesus. Absolutely fascinating stuff here that you've got. It's discovered in the shadow of the temple, this this piece of archaeology. Next. All right, so what is this interpretation of Jesus about honor your father and mother? It's with, as rabbinic literature says, behoncha, with your substance. It's not about respect or obedience. It's about taking care, adult children taking care of their elderly parents when they are in need. Jesus is on a completely different wavelength, no pun intended, uh, to, see what I did with that? Um, thank you. Um, it's on a completely different frequency in his interpretation and application of honor your father and mother than we are. Now, that doesn't mean that you can go around yelling at your parents or disrespecting them or whatever. There are other passages that cover that. Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents for this is right in the Lord, right? So we've got that covered. It's not, we're not taking candy away from the baby. We're simply saying in Jesus' context, when he says, honor your father and mother, and then he interprets that a certain way, we need to be able to go with that. Original intent, authentic the author's or the original character's intent. And what I'm saying is there's a whole interpretive tradition behind this that is verified by literature and archaeology that says Jesus is right there as a product of his times and is speaking the language of the people he's talking to. And he's using that, that popular interpretation and application of that verse to make a point. Don't don't nullify God's word by setting your traditions as more important than that. And I think, again, that that's an important word for us today. Unfortunately, we've got to go on. All right, point number four, the Bible through the lens of geography. This is going to be a real quick one, so don't worry about taking notes. Next, in Matthew 20 and in Mark 10, Jesus meets a man who we call Blind Bartimaeus, like that was his name, as... No, he's blind, and his name is Bar, you know, like Bar Mitzvah. You know that, don't you? What does it mean? Son of. It's like Ben, son of, son of the commandment. So Bar Timaeus, just like Bartholomew or Bar Jesus or Bar Jonah or any of those, bar, any of those words, the names that start with B-A-R, it's not part of the name. It means son of. Okay, so keep that in mind, and that's going to make you a more literate, more accurate reader of your own Bible. Anyway, he meets the son of Timaeus, and as they were going out from Jericho, next slide, 
But the problem is that in the same passage in Luke chapter 18, when you look at Luke's version of this, you know, he only meets Bartimaeus once. He doesn't have Alzheimer's. He doesn't meet the same person for the first time twice, three times, five times, hear the same joke and laugh at it for the first time multiple times. Jesus meets Bartimaeus for the first time once. Okay, And it came about that as he was approaching Jericho. So, wait a minute. Matthew and Mark said as he was leaving Jericho. All right, you can parse Greek verbs, you can learn Hebrew, you can learn Aramaic, you can be an archaeologist, whatever, but the reality of, of this situation is you're not going to figure this one out. This looks like, whoops, I have caught the gospel writers in a mistake. They can't both be right. You can't have Jesus leaving Jericho and here entering Jericho and both of those be true. Or can you? That interest, that's kind of like that dateline, that guy's spooky voice, or did he? <laughs> All right, so let's see what happens. Can we have our cake and eat it too? Survey says, in uh, the archaeology of the area around Jericho, you have Joshua's Jericho, which is this mound here. It's a mess archaeologically. It's also controlled by the uh, Palestinian Authority, so we don't even bother taking groups there. But I can show it to you digitally, and it is there. This is ancient Jericho, but if you will go south this way, about a half a mile, look at what you find. You find Herodian period, King Herod the Great. You find New Testament period, Jericho. It's a half a mile down the road. Herod loved huge stuff. He's got four palaces. Look at this gigantic sprawling palace right here. Herod had four of these. That, those were just his residences. Then he has all kinds of public buildings and people's private homes and there's fountains and there's big wide Roman streets and stuff. This is a thriving metropolis. A half a mile down the road from Old Testament Jericho is New Testament Jericho. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, gentlemen, we have two Jerichos, just like we have two Bristol, Tennessee, Bristol, Virginia, Minneapolis, St. Paul, East St. Louis and St. Louis. You've basically got the same city just in two developmental stages. And so uh, you can be going out of Old Testament Jericho, and that's Matthew and Mark's orientation is, what did the Bible say? I'm Jewish. I grew up in the land of Israel. This Herodian period, Greeks, fountains, statues, bathhouses and stuff all over the place, this is Luke's orientation and, and the orientation of his audience as well, Greco-Roman, right? And so you do have, can have here your cake and eat it too. He was going out of Old Testament Jericho, approaching New Testament Jericho, and guess where people who beg alms get? Right in the traffic flow between one and the other makes perfect sense. Unfortunately, you can't figure this one out by any of the other lenses. You have to develop the lens of geography. And then doors and windows swing wide open when you've got the right key, but not all keys fit, the same, fit all locks. So in developing your perspective, in developing your lens, you're going to want to become familiar with the geography of the Bible because all 40-plus authors of Scripture take for granted that you know the world that they're talking about. 
We were trying to get talked in by these guys last night. Snow was blowing. Roads were bad. We were unfamiliar with the territory. Um, it, it, it just is so much easier when you know where you're going to get there. Uh, there's a geographical component to your life, my life, and their lives. And they just assume you know where all these places are what kind of crops are grown there, what kind of temperature, you know, what sort of weather that they have, what, uh, you know, how much rainfall they get, how many people live there, how you get from point A to point B. They all assume it. So guess what happens to us when we don't know the geography of the Bible? We just ignore it. We just ignore it. I mean, after all, those names are hard to pronounce anyway, right? Ladies and gentlemen, Paul said this, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. That means even the hard-to-pronounce names. That means the geography as much as the archaeology or the language or the culture or any of these other lenses. Geography is also, it's, got, it's wedded in. It's just mixed right in with all that other stuff like for all have sinned and come short of the assemblies of God. It's all in there together. It's all one big alphabet or alphabet or alphabeta soup. Next. Another palace, Herod the Great, amazing. Next, the Bible through the lens of archaeology. Again, we're, we're, we're now on fast forward. I don't know if you noticed that, but we've now gone into fast forward because uh, they dock my pay if I go over into stoppage time. Any soccer fans? No? Okay, into overtime then. All right. Uh, in the book of Ruth, for the first time in, the, in our Bible, we hear about David, okay? D-A-V-I-D, all right? David, King David, the dynasty of David, David and Solomon, David, the ancestor of Jesus. You know this David, right? But there's a whole segment of that world out there. They've been influenced by secular universities, by um, Bible scholars who don't have the same faith commitments that we have. And we've been told basically since the Enlightenment that people like Abraham, David, and others are a figment of our religious collective imagination. They didn't really exist. They're kind of like Robin Hood or King Arthur. They're just sort of mystical figures, throw-together figures, composite figures, representative figures, but there was no real historical King David, right? Another passage in the Bible. David put garrisons among the Arameans. That means he's all the way up there in what we call Syria today that for eight years has been involved in a civil war, right? You've been keeping up with this. Um, President Bashir al-Assad, um, and then you've got, um, you've got Hezbollah there, and you've got, uh, uh, you've got Al-Qaeda there, or ISIS Islamic State in, uh, um, in Syria. Okay, so we're talking about ancient Aram. By the way, that's where Aramaic comes from. Not from the land of Israel. Aramaic is spoken by Arameans. So we're talking about people in the land of Syria. And they became servants to David. And the Lord blessed David wherever he went. Okay, there's another reference to David in Syria. So he's a serious king according to the Bible. He's dominating foreign countries, not just the land given to Abraham by God in the Bible. Next. Okay. 
Ben-Hadad, that's interesting, Hadad is the storm god, the son of the storm god said to Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, the cities my father took from your father, I will restore. And you can make marketplaces, actually I think this word means garrisons, uh, uh, military garrisons for yourself in Damascus as my father made, made once upon a time in your capital city, Samaria. This is all really interesting stuff, but just watch where this goes. Next. We have a long text, and for those of you in the back, I'm not even sure you can see the font. I blew it up as big as I could, but it's a long passage. But basically, Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, was sick. So the king said to his chief of staff, I want you to go consult with this guy, and am I going to get well? And your son Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, sent me to you. And Elisha said, go and say to him, you will recover, but really the Lord shown me you're going to die. All right, so there's a prophecy. First prophecy, this guy who is Ben-Hadad is going to, is going to take the, the, the dust nap, the dirt nap. And he fixed his gaze on him until he was a man of God. Said, Hazel said, why are you weeping? He said, because I know that the evil you will do. So he's saying Hazael is going to take the place of Ben-Hadad. That's the second prophecy. Um, next text. We've got to kind of hurry through this. So then the uh, second prophecy, the Lord has shown me that you will be king over Aram, this guy Hazael, all right? So then now we have Hazael uh, took the cover and dipped it in water and spread it. This is an ancient version of um, waterboarding. It's the first recorded version of dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died. Okay, and Hazael became king in his place. So the first and the second prophecy was fulfilled. Ben-Hadad took the dirt nap. Hazael became king in his place. Fulfilled prophecy. I'm going to show you in stone where this is also written. All right. So then uh, also, uh, let's see. Uh, good enough for that. Next. Uh, Ahaziah was the king of the southern kingdom. And he reigned a year in Jerusalem. That's not very long, and we're going to find out why in just a minute. His mother's name was Athaliah, and she was the daughter of, of uh, she was the granddaughter of Omri, and she was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. So she's a, she's a half Israelite, half Phoenician, Baal-worshipping princess, and she gets married to uh, or she gets married to a king of, of Judah, and Ahaziah is her son. It's an interesting gene genealogical connection there. He went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Hazael, the king of Aram, at Ramoth-Gilead. We know exactly where this place is. None of this stuff is unknown. This is all geographical, political, geopolitical, archaeological reality. And the Arameans wounded Joram, so he went home to recover from his wounds. And Ahaziah went to visit him. And then we pick up on this, the, re the next chapter in the story. I know this is convoluted, but it's so much fun in a kind of a masochistic, nerdy sort of way. All right, so if you didn't see this before, now you're really not going to see it. And I'm going to give you the short version of the story. God spoke through the prophet to a man named Jehu, J-E-H-U, and he said, you are going to overthrow this godless king of the northern kingdom of Israel, Joram. 
So, so Jehu says, okay, uh, so be it, if that's what the Lord's ordained. And so Jehu goes, and Joram was still hurting from his wounds that he got from fighting the Arameans, and, uh, and Jehu finished him off. And not only does he finish him off, but he kind of does a twofer thing, and he kills Ahaziah as well. He just, it's wax on, wax off. Schwarzenegger, Chuck Norris, Steven Seagal, Bruce Willis, and all these guys wrapped into one. That was Jehu, the son of, the Jehu ben Nimshi, the son of Nimshi. All right, so let's take a look at a, another text. And that's, that's this one. So they buried these guys and they're done for. Next slide. And here we have a victory monument found at Tel Dan that was set up by this guy, Hazael. And Hazael mentions in this fifth line up the house of David. This guy that they said they've been saying for 200 years never really existed historically. Even the enemies of Israel know that he existed. And they talk about the house or the dynasty of David. Let's take a look at, the, um, at a close-up of it. Beit David. There it is. DVD. That's an ancient prophecy of a modern technology, by the way. DVD. See what I did with that? If I wanted to, I could keep up with those weirdos on Christian TV, but I don't want to because I tell my wife regularly, I'm so thankful I won't have to answer for that. That's me. Yeah. I don't want that on my plate. All right. So here's the translation. The king of Israel had penetrated into my father's land before. Do you remember those marketplaces by Ahab and by David? All right. But then Hadad, the storm god, made me king. And I, Hazael, killed 70 kings with lots of chariots and cavalry, which, the, by the way, Hollyweed, they pronounce that Calvary all the time. Listen for it. It's fascinating. I laugh every time it happens called a Calvary. Oh, you mean that place where Jesus died? They're not tracking. I've lost them. <laughs> They're still thinking about Hollyweird? Okay. Okay. And I killed Joram, the son of Ahab. Look at that. Bam. David. Uh, 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 house of David. I killed Joram. And I also killed, he's taking responsibility for this, but it's all part of the same historical complex. Remember when Jehu got the twofer? This guy is now taking credit for it. And that happens all the time in the ancient Near East, where one pharaoh will erase the name of the previous pharaoh, and he did something and put his own name in. It's all over the place in the ancient Near East. Anyway, and I killed Ahaz, Joram, son of Ahab, and Ahaziah, the son of Joram, king of the house of David. I turned their houses, towns into ruins. We've got it written in stone, guys. David, less than 100 years after he lived, and he founded a dynasty, and this pagan foreign enemy of Israel is corroborating these historical realities. Don't you just love it when a plan comes together? If you ever watched the A-Team and Hannibal with the big fat cigar? Okay, next. Last, last lens, the Bible through the lens of what? Not geography. Geology. Watch how cool this is. And again, we're on fast forward. In the book of Exodus, chapter 17, God told Moses to strike the rock. 
Yes? Yes. And what happened? Water came out. Next passage. In the book of Numbers, in chapter 20, he says, speak to the rock. But instead, um, he took his, uh, lifted up his hand and he struck the rock twice. And water came out. And the con- So why would water come out here when he disobeyed God? And why would God switch-o, change-o on him? Is he jerking Moses' chain? Is he checking to see if he's paying attention? Um, uh, is this just totally arbitrary? Is God playing games with the people of Israel and with Moses? Why strike the rock but then speak to the rock? And then if he, if he disobeyed God, why'd water come out anyway? This just sounds like so much myth and make-believe, but it's not. I assure you, it, it never is. I haven't been able to find any of that myth and legend and make-believe. The Bible is hardcore, written in stone, like we just saw a minute ago, reality. Watch what happens. Exodus 17 happens in the southern Sinai deserts, where the rock formation is hard red granite. It's impenetrable by water. Water cannot come from or into this kind of rock. Just doesn't work that way. You know what a granite tabletop or countertop is, right? It's impermeable. Nothing goes into that hard, dense rock. So this is the kind of rock God said, strike the rock. Because it does, you could beat the thing to death and no, you're not going to get any water out of it. It's going to be a miracle. All right? So strike the rock. Numbers 20, fast forward to Numbers 20, and you're in a completely different location. Next slide. Now we are in the northern Sinai deserts. Totally different geological formation. Here it is soft limestone, not hard granite. And soft limestone um, uh, soaks up water. And also there are fissures in soft limestone where water runs down into the crack. When water fills up a crack, then it runs out the, you know, water runs down hill or stream looking for the lowest point, and it will seep out of those cracks. However, because limestone is dissolvable, there's sediment that is carried along, and it will eventually heal itself up. It will, it will scab over. It's called, a, the technical term is mineral cap. You can look it up on Al Gore's internet. Um, a mineral cap. It seals up that crack so the water can't come out. But good shepherds are able to read the uh, the, uh, the geological strata, they can see where there's this mineral cap and you don't even have to strike the rock. I have a picture and I'll show it to you in just a minute. You can take your fingernail and scratch that mineral cap and water will begin to seep out of it. Gospel truth, I can show it to you. In real time, you will be standing one step from these mineral cap type things. I'll show it to you in the land of Israel, in the land of the Bible. Next slide. Nahal Zin, this is where they are in Wadi, in the, in the canyon of Zin, when he strikes the rock. This is where Miriam died, where the spies are sent away and stuff like that. And I'll take you and we'll hike through this thing too. Let's do it. Come on. All right. You see the water right here? This is in the, this is in the northern Sinai, quote, deserts. Next. See that mineral seep right there, that water seep? 
It's changed the, the sediment from the white limestone has actually changed the color. And this is one of those acacia trees uh, that flatten out on the top that protect their root system from evaporation. And that's the kind of wood that the Ark of the Covenant and all the other furniture of the tabernacle is made from, an acacia tree. Isn't that fascinating? So since they don't get very fat, how do you split that and make wood planks? You have to use laminates. Somebody had to have invented glue. I'll say nothing about boogers. Never mind. (laughs) Next. And there is that mineral cap. I don't know who that guy is. He wouldn't get out of the way when we were taking the picture. Do you see this mineral cap right here? And do you see the discoloration right there? That that discoloration is from the the water. Part of that is this this black flint um, that has... Some of it is dissolved or gotten into the water, and it's discolored. This is all discoloration on the side of a canyon wall, and this is the mineral cap right here. It's spongy, actually. You can push it, and it moves. So imagine what you could do with a piece of rock or with a stick. So Moses was angry. You rebels, why are you questioning me or the Lord? Bam, bam. So then... Why did God tell him, speak to the rock, don't strike the rock? Because you could strike the rock and get water and it would not be miraculous. If you spoke to it, that's a different thing. Here's the problem. Moses stole God's glory. Moses became the provider of the water, not God. Leaders, whether you're a Sunday school leader, you're you're somebody's mom or dad, don't ever take the place of God in terms of being the provider for the people who are under your leadership. That is the kiss of death. God takes his hands off that and he says, all right, you're on your own now. You want to be your own provider? Have at it. Um, We don't want to be in that kind of position. So there's all kinds of cool stuff that we can know just by knowing about mineral caps and northern Sinai versus southern Sinai. God's not being arbitrary. God's saying, I alone receive the glory. I alone am to be seen as the ultimate provider for my people. I am their ultimate leader. It's all kinds of neat um, uh, takeaway points if you can dial into original context and original meaning of the author. So I've opened up for you or given you examples of five different lenses that we can develop that we can understand our Bible better by, and it all becomes very relevant in terms of putting it into practice. So I trust that these two sessions together have um, helped, have encouraged, have challenged, moved the ball a little bit. Um, More than anything, develop that healthy soil of reality, of verifiable, historical, archaeological, geographical, geological, literary reality that says, my Bible is real. It's not make-believe. It's not once upon a time and they all lived happily ever after. If you like that, read other stuff. But my Bible is in-your-face reality. And it can, because it's real, then it can be trusted. It's authoritative and it can be trusted to determine what we believe, and how we live our everyday lives. And it's fertile soil for your relationship to God to grow in. God bless you, Calvary Church. I look forward to ministering to you tomorrow from Acts chapter 10.